Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Livebook Kino gets a new control feature. So it is a YouTube control. You can check out a link to the tweet that has a picture of this. This is from Jose Valim. He tweeted about this. But so in your Elixir cell block, you have a kino.youtube.new and you pass in a string. And the string is the ID of the YouTube video. And what's really cool is that it will render an embedded YouTube video right there in the live book. So I thought this was just a neat feature, especially for the situations where you're trying to do some type of education or creating something that can be a resource for people to learn. You can link out to an example, like a five minute video that shows how to do something and then they get to play with the code right after it. So that could be a really great thing for library authors who are wanting to showcase how to use their library, especially if it's a little bit more involved. So you could have like even a one or two minute little video and then play with it. thought that was really neat. And we saw a tip uh, tweeted out, thought worth repeating here. Um, If you're using LiveView, then you know that sometimes there's some interactive bits on your page that might take a second or something to to load. But most of the time, the loading time is so fast, you might see that loading bar, but that loading bar just kind of flashes in and out real quick, right? It's a trick of the mind to actually maybe delay that loading bar until it's actually worth it, for example. (laughs) And by worth it, we might mean like, If it's going to actually take more than, I don't know, 500 milliseconds, which is half a second, which is still pretty quick, then maybe you don't show a a progress bar, you know, something loading because the mind will think, you know, because that loading bar flashed that, oh, I'm supposed to wait. But usually these things happen so quickly, it's just a flash. So the tip is don't show it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't show it for a a timeout rather, you know, Uh, reserve that that loading bar for actual wait times. And so it takes about, I don't know, 12 lines of code in, in JavaScript to add a timeout before showing the loading bar. And again, it's just a, you know, it's just a trick of perception. It's not really changing anything. It's just, it's tricking users into the thinking it's faster than maybe it really is. But it is also fast. So that I want to throw that out there too. I've been doing this since they added in progress. That was the JavaScript library that was doing the, uh, the loading bar at the top back in LiveView for, for a while. But I've always replaced it with top bar. And I think LiveView also ships with top bar nowadays. So yeah, just a couple of lines of code, like a 150 or 200 millisecond delay before adding the loading bar. And like that, magically, your site is performing much faster. Take that to your boss. Let's see see what they think. I feel like you guys are going the opposite direction. Aren't you supposed to make your app slower so that people think it's real? Because when it's so <laughs> snappy, they're like, no, this is supposed to take a couple seconds to load this chart. And it was instant. So this is fake data. I wanted to mention this in the news because I just added this to a, an app this morning when I was wanting to test this out. It truly does feel snappier. Part of it is, is because even when you're navigating around from one live view to another live view and you're reusing the same socket, you'd still get this little flash. And that flash tells my brain it's not ready. Even if there is some delay of readiness, it is so short that by the time my brain has figured out where I want to go on the page and done anything, it is totally ready. And so just making this one little change of 200 milliseconds just really made it feel snappy, just made it feel instantaneous. Another little tip we saw tweeted by Jose as well is a ecto minimal cheat sheet. Basically, he said ecto schema is the data. Ecto repo is how you access the data. 
Ecto query is how you read the data, and then Ecto change set is changing the data. We thought that was pretty cool. If you're new to Ecto, that's a pretty concise way of naming all the primary modules you're going to be interacting with. And what I like about this is, you know, just to kind of compare and contrast with something like Rails, where active model is the way you do all these things. This is the separation of concerns. And especially when you're dealing with change sets, schemas and things, you get composition benefits of how to do like all these dynamic change sets and composing better behavior and everything. So it really is helpful just to have that four little breakout. Uh, It's like schema is the data, repo access it, query is reading it, change set is changing it. I think it's a, a great way to just kind of introduce it and help people who are new to it understand where those separations come from. Up next, GRISP2 boards are shipping. So I saw this on Twitter where it was being shared, and we'd mentioned this before. So GRISP2 is a hardware board that is specifically designed for embedded Erlang and Elixir systems. So I just thought it was great to see that it looks like it was another successful Kickstarter campaign, as this was the second version of the GRISP boards. So congrats to Pierre and the team involved. OpenTelemetry for Elixir and Erlang reached 1.0 recently. They reached 1.0 with a couple of other languages too, like JavaScript and Ruby for that matter. And if you haven't heard of OpenTelemetry, it's an open way of emitting and capturing and exporting telemetry events. So we do have the telemetry library in, in Elixir and Erlang, but this is OpenTelemetry, which is how to get those stats, those metrics out of the system and, and, and understood and emitted, right? And so that's what OpenTelemetry is all about. So of course, it's going to be cross-language. So the 1.0 release had its own blog post. So we have a link to the blog post, give it a read. Mostly seems to be a mark of stability, but there are some you know, new configuration options added, like around OpenTelemetry exporter. And since it covers Ruby, JavaScript, Erlang, Elixir, just including JavaScript there, that might cover your stack. So go check out the release notes. And just another note that this effort was by 28 developers from 14 organizations that helped get to 1.0. So this isn't necessarily a small group, though I think there is a small group that's leading the effort, but it's an effort among many folks. You know, this is a common problem out there in the industry. So open telemetry is a good way to organize your, your metrics and stuff without getting that vendor lock-in, for example. Are you feeling hungry? Well, don't come to this meetup because lunch is not provided, but there is a remote lunch, meet, and chat, no agenda, just eat your food in front of your monitor and your camera, turn on your microphone so everyone can hear you chewing, (laughs) and just chill and chat. Actually, probably don't do any of those things, but we'll drop a link in the show notes. Armand Velasco, we've had him on the podcast before, is running it, and it should be a little fun event to attend. I think things like that are great just because if you're working remote and you don't have a lot of Elixir people around, it can be great to just hang out and chat and just talk about Elixir and get excited about it and maybe ask some questions with other people. As a follow-up from a previous episode where we talked with Chris McCord about live beats, we're going to reshare the link to the GitHub project because I've been seeing people who have had success in finding examples and, and value from looking at the source code. I know I've looked into it some, like I was trying to do some of the JS modal so that modals would fade in and fade out and and everything. And I had to figure out how to do that in my own project. And I was looking at, at this project to help me figure that out. We recently started up a new LiveView project at my company. And there were some of us that, that hadn't ever done LiveView before. And 
I think we leaned pretty heavily on the Live Beats code base. And it's a good example. It's It goes really far. It's not just a hello world page, right? So we leaned pretty heavily on examples of how to organize things and where to put things and how to code certain modules up. So props to Chris for putting so much time and effort into this and making it available to share with people. So it was, it's a really great resource if you're if you're jumping in for the first time, or even if you've been doing it for a while, lots of good nuggets of information in there. This new project, we, we probably spent seven business days working on it and we were able to launch something really quickly that is 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 just like a bug free really clean awesome app this is the first live view app in the company so we're really excited to showcase it and that's it for the news fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services beyond being great for supporting us they are a great place to host your next elixir app check them out at fly.io Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Derek Reimer. Derek, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited because you're kind of living the dream, right? The dream that I I love, which is like this indie solo developer kind of idea. And you've created this product called Savvy Cal, which I'd actually heard about independently. And then I later learned out, whoa, you're using Elixir for this? That is really cool. So I'm really happy to be able to talk to you about how Elixir is helping you solve these problems, what you're doing at Savvy Cal. And just what's all going on here. But before we jump into all of that, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, where do you live and what kind of work you're doing? Yeah, so I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, currently. I've been here for about five years. I'm actually originally from California. Grew up in the Central Valley, surrounded by fruit trees. There actually is a little pocket of tech in Fresno. There's this kind of cool little kind of ecosystem that has been building up there. And that's sort of where I got my start around the time that they started building that up in Fresno, which is near my hometown. I sort of started to get into the tech industry right out of college. Before that, I was I was a hobbyist developer, kind of self-taught. My dad introduced me to DOS Basic when I was a kid, and then sort of just you know built toy projects and things growing up. And then at a certain point, decided, hey, I think I want to try to do this as a career. So yeah, I I grew up in California, and then about five years ago, when I sold the company that I helped start, we were acquired by Lead Pages out here in Minneapolis, and. I took that as an opportunity to to try out a new place to live. And boy, it's it's quite different. I'm looking at snow flurries outside my window right now and never saw those in California. So <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not at the grove of trees, right? Like growing oranges. No, they would throw blankets over those when if it's going to get to 32 degrees. Yeah. So how did you then get into Elixir? Was that a, a, a recent thing? I was a Ruby developer primarily before getting into Elixir and built Drip, my startup that I spent a number of years working on in Ruby on Rails, kind of a classic Rails stack. And I really enjoyed that ecosystem a lot. There's a lot of things that I feel like were formative in my growth as a developer, you know, learning good good testing habits and kind of thinking about code architecture in a way of like, how do I architect this in a way that's not only readable, but also beautiful? Like, I, I like that element that that sort of emerged out of the Ruby community. And and um, I really latched onto it a lot. But I think there were definitely elements from building in Ruby that over time I started to get increasingly unsatisfied with. Like mutability is just something that I've gotten bitten by so many times. And so about a year before building in Elixir, I started kind of just looking around the landscape of of like some, some more functional languages. Played around with Elm a bit. Never really got into Haskell. That was a little, little bit 
too theoretical for me, I think. <laughs> but I enjoyed Elm, and I started to like appreciate type systems more and more, and some of these things that can add additional safeguards and almost like simplify the way you architect things. I was just thinking the other day about, you know, when I was maintaining Ruby code, I was constantly thinking about, you know, should should this be a new class? Like object orientation gives you a, a whole palette of choices to make at all times. And like, should this be a public publicly accessible method or should this be a private instance variable? And and I don't know, just so many different architectural things that you can think about. And I think a lot of those are actually kind of low value decisions, but they add additional friction. And so when I first started looking at Elixir, I just—I can't remember when I discovered it, but I think maybe Thoughtbot was talking about it. And so and they're influential in the Ruby community and now the Elixir community. And so that sort of turned me on to it. And when I first looked at it, I'm like, this looks very much like Ruby. Like it feels like a lot of the good parts of Ruby that I like, very clean syntax. I found it just kind of natural and easy to read. And so I started looking at it more closely and discovered, like, I think this kind of gives me the best of both worlds of like the beauty and the expressiveness of Ruby, but also, you know, kind of the the simplicity that comes with the functional paradigm. And then obviously, like, the more I dug into it, I started learning about the performance aspects of it and and kind of its, its Erlang roots. And so all those things kind of added up, made me really, really intrigued. Yeah, that's funny, because I never did much Ruby. And I remember one of my colleagues was coding in Elixir, and I, I glanced over to look at what he wanted to show me what it was. And I'm like, this looks so foreign. What's going on? I can't understand anything. So it's it's funny, just, you know, your background, I guess, changes your perception of things. It took me a little bit before I, I, I actually wanted to dig into Elixir. My first experience with it, I was like, ah, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do JavaScript. And looking back on that, that sounds funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that there are, I mean, there are certainly elements of it that are kind of quirky that I still find to be quirky. But like, once I embrace them, you know, then I just kind of learned to love it. Like, Pattern matching and piping was something that you see, you know, all over Elixir code. And at first I was like, this seems cryptic. But once you wrap your mind around it, then it's like, oh, this is actually a really powerful tool now. And I'm going to use, I want to use this everywhere. Yeah, you'd mentioned type systems earlier. And while Elixir doesn't really have type systems, but pattern matching kind of gives some of that utility that, that I I look for out of it without being so much in your face, you know, where you have to have all these abstraction interface factories mm-hmm. and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I think now is probably a good time to have you describe SavvyCal so we can understand what problem it is you're solving and where Elixir fits into this. Yeah, so SavvyCal is a scheduling tool. So it, your listeners might be familiar with Calendly. They're sort of the 800-pound gorilla in this space of you know a platform that allows you to generate a scheduling link, connect it to your calendars, and then you can send that link to someone else and it'll automatically block out times when you're not available, when you're already busy, and you can you know dial in all your all your preferences of how long should the meeting be? You know, should I invite additional teammates to this and include them on the calendar invite? Should this be a round robin link? So there's all kinds of all kinds of things you can do when generating kind of these these scheduling links. So SavvyCal is sort of a a I would say a freshened up 2022 take on this problem space. You know, I think Calendly I, I have a lot of admiration and respect for what they've built and. They pioneered sort of the normalizing, you know, using scheduling links to cut out that like back and forth of, you know, trying to, you know, I'll name some times. Nope, those don't work for me. I'll name some times over email back and forth. They sort of pioneered this, but I feel like the space is still ripe for more innovation. And some of the things we're doing differently, we're, we're kind of exposing a calendar interface on the booking page so that 
you know, when I'm looking at it, I'm seeing kind of a familiar week view looking very similar to a Google Calendar view. And I can click a button to off my calendar so I can see my calendar events on top of your availability and immediately see this high fidelity view where I get to intersect kind of our mutual availability. So what I'm trying to do is is alleviate sort of the the weird power dynamic that emerges when you send a Calendly link and someone says, you know, feels like you're pushing work onto their plate or you're asking them to accommodate you. And what I'm trying to do is make this feel more collaborative, more convenient for everybody. So far, it's it's been quite a ride. Um, we've got started right around the beginning of the pandemic, as it turned out. Like that wasn't an intentional decision, but it just just so happened. <laughs> There's been a trend of Obviously, people need to be more deliberate about finding times to meet with people because they're not running into each other in the office. So there's sort of been, I think, increased demand for this type of tool, and that has certainly helped. And then at the beginning of last year, so beginning of 2021, we launched on Product Hunt, and a lot of times Product Hunt launches don't really yield much. It's just a lot of people who are kind of early adopters interested in checking out new things. But for us, it was it was a particularly good fit, I would say, with the type of people that are browsing that site because we we saw a big kind of jump in revenue at that point and that sort of set us on a trajectory that we're on today. So yeah, we're still growing and it's pretty fun. That's pretty interesting. You talk about that power dynamic. Yeah, there's two things that suck there. Yeah, the power dynamic is is one of them. Like almost as if I I don't have an assistant, but he, you're going to act as the role of my assistant for now. Like just put a spot on my calendar. <laughs> but the other part that stuck out was the UI aspect of that too. I, I do appreciate like what you said there, where it overlays the the calendars on on top of each other because. When I've tried to schedule something on Calendly, it it presents me like a list of times. I'm like, well, I don't know. Like I, now, now I got to go open up this other tab, look at my. You have to open up two and compare. Yeah, I have the same problem like scheduling meetups too. Like it's very one sided. So I, yeah, I think there is a space there to get to get better. So I appreciate that you're you're taking that on. There's one other piece too that I don't know if this has been such a potent like selling point that I've been able to really push, but. Personally, like I'm a maker founder, so I spend a lot of my time in deep work time, but I also have to meet with other people. And one of the problems that I had with these types of tools was always feeling this like anxiety when I'm going to send someone a link, like, did I update my calendar properly? Are they going to book like, you know, smack in the middle of a time that I had kind of mentally set aside as, you know, when I'm going to get stuff done and always worrying about wrecking my calendar. And so that's the other piece that I'm really trying to to do is like make the administrative interface also like really really easy for you to like go in preview the link and you can see all your own calendar events right there and you can drag like you can sort of paint on the calendar canvas and say like nope right here i just want to block this off before sending so you can do like that quick sanity checking before sending it out and we have ranked availability so you can say i want to propose afternoons only first and then if that doesn't work for them a little pop-up shows up in the bottom that's like, do you need to see more times? None of these work. And they can click that and expand to broader availability. So like some of these things, I mean, if you're a salesperson, you're probably like, I'm, I want to be available all the time. My job is to take calls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you're someone like me, who's like, I'm trying to kind of wear, wear both these hats where I need to meet with people, but also need to guard my time. I'm also trying to kind of straddle that a, a bit. So we're talking a lot about the product side, the UI side of it, and we're going to revisit some of that soon. But I, I'm curious how... Is Elixir part of this solution? How does how did it help you with this? Yeah, the entire backend is basically a, an Elixir Phoenix monolith. And 
I sort of started building the core of it, which is sort of standard server-side rendered Elixir pages. Before working on Savvy Cal, I built another product we could probably talk a little more about that was competing with Slack. And I sort of went with a really ambitious tech stack with that and, and tried to like build like API layer only on the back end and then a separated front end that's all Elm and keep these like very strict, strict barriers between back end and front end. There were definitely some some nice parts of architecting in that way, but a lot of drawbacks. Like it, I think I harmed my productivity in ways that were didn't serve the business well. And so this time around, I, I definitely have embraced the monolith and, you know, I'm kind of allow myself to freely move between like some pages that are really simple. Just let this be server side rendered HTML from Phoenix and, you know, keep it really, really simple. And then other interfaces that are more complex work in React components where necessary. Sometimes the entire page is one giant React app. Other times there's just a few small React apps that are injected at different spots. So I've sort of tried to be, you know, pretty pragmatic with where the UI gets complicated. So I got to ask then, you have some some moments of like interactivity on, on the page. And you're talking about a Phoenix monolith. Have you heard of Phoenix Live View? <laughs> <laughs> I have. I actually was I was at the Elixir conf where Chris McCord like was presenting the first iterations of uh, of Live View. That's like two years ago at this point, or three years. How old are we? <laughs> <laughs> I know. A pandemic has happened that, that oh, warped time. Yeah. So I first encountered Live View when it was like very, very early. And so I couldn't use it on level the the team communication platform because i was i was breaking ground on it and needed something production ready at that time kind of during that time i learned a bunch of react i was building some developer tooling and like required me to get up to speed on react and stuff and then i found my ideal stack with like react typescript and you know passing json blobs where necessary from from the back end to the front end and it just sort of i try to be really practical with choosing technology stacks and like i don't necessarily recommend this this particular stack to others. Like I think LiveView is a really compelling piece of technology, but I just sort of, the stars never aligned for me to, uh, to, to fully like get on board with LiveView. Yeah. You, you found your happy place earlier on and LiveView certainly at that point in time was, was not, not something that you probably would need at that, at that moment anyway. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And rewriting is like not practical most of the time. So <laughs> your ship has sailed and it's not coming back. <laughs> I, I'd say in the past like three, six months or so is when Phoenix Live View has been something that can be really helpful for a broader group of, of apps. Where right when it launched, it was like a pretty specific thing that you'd want to use it for, I think. So I got to ask about one thing, which is dates, because dates make me sad. Time zones make me sad. <laughs> All of those things. How how is that? Your your whole product is. How are you happy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how is that working out for you? <laughs> I will say, like, I had some experience with that in my prior product drip. You know, we were email automation and doing a lot of careful timing of email sends and and all that kind of stuff. So, I definitely saw all the dark edges that come with trying to deal with different time zones and date handling. And like, I think I've picked up some like what not to do things from that era. And so it's actually been surprisingly not that bad because, you know, I went into the product from the, from the very first line of code, knowing that like, this is something that I need to be carefully architecting for as I go. So like one pattern that I use everywhere is I never rely on like the global definition of now like everywhere where I'm possibly referencing the current time, 
that is injected, you know, through arguments passed down. And I even have like sort of a, a middleware layer where I can use a special parameter in like calling an API endpoint or something and pass for the for the sake of testing, what is the definition of now? And that propagates all the way through all the places. Just mocking and trying to like stub out the current definition of time was always something that was really buggy and painful to do. So some of the architectural decisions I think have made it easier. And then I found actually the libraries to be really, really nice. I, I love Timex. I love the way that like seems like Elixir core has gradually added more and more kind of time functions baked into it, date time handling stuff. And it's I kind of like to see how how Timex sort of will gracefully like deprecate their own duplicated efforts and say like this is now in core, but you can use this and they kind of work really nicely together. And so I've been actually pretty pleased with with the the time tooling. Well, maybe I just need to spend more time with Timex because when you said you like Timex, I was like, man, yesterday I wasn't loving it because <laughs> I needed to do like something relative. And it was like Timex.format.datetime.formatters.relative.relative to. And I'm like, who's going to remember this API? I must be using it wrong like <laughs> to get relative text. Like, I don't know. Every time I do anything formatting related, I'm I have to look at the docs every time. So, <laughs> OK, OK. I don't know if that part ever uh, gets any smoother. <laughs> Just gotten really smooth at navigating the Timex docs. Have those on quick access for sure. There were a couple things you said there that I thought were really interesting. One was the great tip about passing in the definition of now for the improvement of testing. You know, like being able to say something should happen five minutes from now or five seconds or something like that and being able to have much more control over it. I think that's a great tip. The other thing I thought was an interesting tip is just the idea that you said it's a monolithic Phoenix app and that you'd learned from previous experiences where you'd had it split out into more layers, more separation that that added complexity. And especially when I think of you in this position of being more of an indie kind of solo developer, that any amount of friction becomes a lot more painful. When you're trying to compete in a market that's that's decently competitive, which honestly, that's probably the the right spot to be in. I think if you're building in a market where there's not competition and there's not like a lot of activity, then you're probably going to have a hard time uh, growing. So I think that's the the nature of of trying to you know build your own product and get get into the market. You're always contending with with people that are probably have more more resources, more money, more engineers that can work on the problem. So, you know, how the heck do you approach competing with a billion dollar company <laughs> as a solo developer? And I think the greatest strength that you have in that position is being nimble and being able to move really, really fast and be really responsive to your market, what you're hearing from specific people that are going to become, you know, ultimate true fans and promoters of what you're working on. And so that I think velocity above anything else is the most important thing as an indie developer. And so I think keeping the complexity of your stack to an absolute minimum is vital for that. I think an interesting note, too, is I'm still hosted on Heroku, which I think is a lot of people would kind of roll their eyes at or something because it doesn't allow me to leverage all of the aspects of what Elixir has to offer in the Erlang VM. You know, like I, I'm, get, I'm foregoing some of those things for now. But, but honestly, the, the choice for Heroku was pretty easy for me because... One, I was really, really familiar with it. I've deployed apps to it for years and years. They're battle-hardened. They've been around forever and <laughs> feels like forever in technology years. And they have a good handle on just how their systems work. And so I felt like it was going to be the least amount of ceremony to just get it 
on this platform that's a tried and true thing. Like I know there are newer hosts and I'll probably eventually move to a more a more elixir specific one, but at the time when I'm just starting out, like I don't want that to be a variable. I don't want a hosting company that is more in a beta type of phase. <laughs> like I want to control that variable as much as possible so that I can just move fast and and uh, hopefully not have too many issues on that front. So speaking of like simplifying your stack and being in your happy place in that in that case. So I want to v- help validate with you. Was Elixir something that helps you be productive fast and early or was that just something that you were comfortable with and like it could have been any other language like was there anything specific about elixir that actually helped you launch and you know be be a successful product that's a good question what's most important is find figuring out what your happy spot is you know the 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 technology that you know the best is probably going to be the right one to go with when when building an mvp of something that being said, I encourage people to always encourage people to check out Elixir because I think it has some unique elements that make it particularly productive for me. Like I think obviously my experience is influenced by having written Ruby for a number of years and coming into Elixir as a more senior level developer. So it's all context specific, I guess. But I found like, you know, the the package ecosystem, that's always a, a big thing that I look for is like, am I going to end up having to like build stuff myself? Where in other languages, that would just be a library for that, you know? And that was one thing that I encountered with Elm. I, st- I don't want to disparage Elm. I still really enjoy the language, and I think it has a lot of great use cases. But when I'm trying to build an entire front end in Elm, I found the package ecosystem was very, very light. And so I was having to just roll my own solution for so many things. And that slowed me way down. Like I was writing data fetching and caching logic on the front end where TypeScript, JavaScript, React ecosystem, there's just a million different libraries that you can choose from and you can weigh them against each other. And so I think that's a that's a really important thing to look for in, a, in picking a language. And I found Elixir to be, even when I started playing with it maybe four years ago, I think it was still like mature enough for me to say like, I think this is, this language is going to be around. It has enough longevity under it where it's not going to go unmaintained. And there are a lot of companies using it and the package ecosystem is good and growing. There's a lot of activity. That was definitely a big factor. Let me rephrase the question. Does Elixir give you a competitive advantage? I think it probably does because I'm able to ship really, really fast. Realizing that it's contextual, like what you just said. Yeah, it, it, it's specific to you because that's part of your your happy path. But you're also a Ruby developer, Rails developer, and, and it has like a, a, a you know an even bigger ecosystem. I'm trying to get out of this, you know, uh, out of this realm of like, well, you know what, like you can, you can write it in whatever you want and it's fine. <laughs> and that's true. And I, and I, you know, but, but we enjoy Elixir and, and I, and I, I'm trying to find out like is, and separate feelings from like objectivity and maybe I won't be able to find that. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say like, I, I'm truly an Elixir fanboy. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> I just find it to be a, a delightful ecosystem. And I think, not having the same spots for for paper cuts that I had in Ruby has been big. Like I think if if developers can embrace the functional paradigm, like I know there are parts of it that feel weird at first, and I still will occasionally find myself trying to call a method on a data structure and then realize I need to pass it. <laughs> you know, like I still do that. Like my old Ruby muscle memory. You know, once you can kind of get rebuild some of those habits and remember to like pass the thing into the function instead of you know the other way around. Like, I think there's a lot of productivity benefits to it. 
like honestly, so bringing it kind of back to the context of an an indie developer, you know, with Ruby, something we had to deal with earlier than I would have wanted was scaling concerns. And I'm never one to to bag on Ruby and say it doesn't scale because it it can. It just comes at a cost of complexity and and money. You know, you got to put got to buy more servers to get that parallelism. SavvyCal still runs on a single Heroku dyno. Congrats. <laughs> yeah. It hums along like at 40% memory utilization, doesn't really spike above that. And we serve a lot of requ- we take in a lot of webhooks from calendar providers. So every time some, you know, someone who connects their Google Calendar, we subscribe to updates so that when if someone cancels an event on the calendar, those changes propagate back to SavvyCal. And that means there's just a fire hose of data coming our way all the time. It just hums along and consumes it, no problem. The biggest bottleneck has been like, you know, database. Like if we overwhelm the database connections. And so I've had to just kind of throw more money at that for now. And then we'll gradually work towards more intelligent connection pooling and all that kind of stuff. But on the Elixir side, like no bottleneck there. It's just been really, really handling like a champ. And I think that's just been so nice to not have to think about that and not have to spend obviously money on that. Like our hosting is very reasonable. And so revenue has far outstripped, you know, hosting costs, which is what you want to see. And so I think there's a very practical element to that too, you know, of like it deals with parallel processing really well. You know, there's a lot of caching stuff that you can do without having to pull in something like a Redis. On and on and on. There's so many benefits. I'm curious, yeah, do you use Redis? I haven't had to yet. I used it a ton in Rubyland. A while back we had to figure out how to do some like very short-term caching to basically throttle our requests to calendar providers, you know, like when, when we show in a, a, a booking page, we want to show like very, very up to the minute availability so that you, you don't end up in a situation where someone tries to double book over something. But there's a limit to that because we can't just hammer, you know, Google APIs all day. every. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to buffer that a little bit, right? And so then I was kind of, that's when I was making decisions around, okay, do I try to roll my own, like kind of use a gen server or whatever and like hold some state in memory? That seemed like maybe that's a little too low level for this kind of application specific feature. And, you know, I thought like, do I, do I work with Redis? Cause that's something that I kind of know well, but then you're introducing network calls and additional hosting costs and complexity and points of failure. And then I started exploring CacheX, the library for Elixir. And that seemed to fit the bill ex- exactly what I wanted. But since we're on Heroku, when we, when we deploy application state is wiped and restarted. And in this case, it's not a big deal because we're keeping, you know, very short term caches in place. So I would say if we if we start to need longer term caching not in the database, then that might be the time to pull in a Redis or something, or it might be the time to kind of shift some of our hosting over to a place where we can keep longer term in memory state. Who knows? We'll see. Yeah. You also have the benefit of like sim- simplicity with your dynos. You have a single dyno, you said. So like distributed cache, you know, would be another another thing. And that's where Redis, you sometimes can come in, you know, but uh, that sounds pretty, pretty typical. Yeah. There's a lot of value in just keeping things, you keep saying pragmatical or pra- practical, like just keeping things simple, like gets you really far a lot faster. Like we early on, we tried to cluster some stuff and then, you know, months went by and one day some dev noticed, hey, we're not clustering anymore for who knows how long it's been. So, you know, if you don't need to do that stuff, like, that's just less stuff you have to worry about. Keeping it simple really helps. Well, I would love to talk a little bit more about some of this indie aspect. But before we move away from talking about SavvyCal, is there anything else you want to mention, like uh, upcoming features or anything like that? 
I'm excited about what we have in store for the next year. Hired my first engineer aside from myself at the company, which I feel like I just uh, I just unlocked a cheat code or something. I'm really really <laughs> excited to have another set of hands working on the product. But yeah, we're we're kind of going deeper into like group scheduling stuff. So like the really hard problems of like there's you know five of us that are mutually trying to find a time to meet. How do we do that? And there's different approaches. You can take a poll or you can you can share your calendars with each other through Savvy Cal and like create a collective link that intersects your availability. So there's all these different interesting modes to make this happen. And we're going to be digging into that a bunch in the next couple of months here. I think doing more kind of automation stuff around your calendar. Like think about the, the use case for recording a podcast. You know, like I received a number of emails kind of in advance of this recording that we're doing right now. So I think it'd be really great if, if Savvy Cal could just kind of handle that kind of stuff. Like 10 days before, send a link to this Google Doc that has shown it, has our notes in it. And then, you know, send this reminder at this specific time. And so I think we're going to be focusing on that kind of stuff. And then just, yeah, building like deeper integrations with other platforms. That's something that I near and dear to my heart because I did a lot of integration stuff at, at Drip when we were doing email automation. So I think it's good both from a, you know, empowering users perspective and from a growth perspective to kind of like play nicely with other applications. Before talking with you today, I didn't know you'd been at one of the developers or the developer, I don't know, but behind Drip. And because I've heard of Drip a lot just through that it's a, this marketing tool and it's, you know, as, as you are in the podcast space and you're about hosting things like, and or if you do courses, Drip is one of those things that comes up a lot. So very cool. And then, yeah, I can totally see how that knowledge and experience of kind of having those email automations kind of drip out, you totally be able to leverage that. That's really exciting. So while we have you here, I'd love to talk a little bit more about this indie SaaS dev. You have it listed that way on your Twitter profile it, as an indie SaaS dev. That might not be a term a lot of people are familiar with. Well, you're, you're indie plus one now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So what does that mean to you when you say you're an indie SaaS dev? The terminology around this stuff is is so hard. So I think historically, we would just call this like bootstrapping, right? That's a term that you know, people have sort of been chipping away at, like, is it even possible to be bootstrapped or like, or what if you bring some of your own funding into this, into the equation? Or what if you raise just a little bit, but not traditional VC? And there's, there's all these different, like, kind of variables that affect the label that you put on what you, what you do. But I feel like indie SaaS is like one of the better labels, but still not perfect. So basically, my goals, my, my trajectory is heavily influenced by like looking at what Basecamp did 37 signals way back in the day right like i don't know if if they're still as much of an inspiration for people now there's just, like so many different examples but like when i was getting started they were like they were the ones who were doing something different they were not taking vc they were charging money for their products and not just like putting ads on things and you know they were just building good software charging money for it and building a really interesting business and to me, that's like, that's the optimal place to be. I'm not really, I've never really been interested in like betting the farm on everything and raising a bunch of VC. And then if it doesn't get to hundred million in, in five years, then it's a failure. You know, like, you know, you have Rand Fishkin from Moz telling his story about this. He's written a book called Lost and Founder. Moz became a $20 million a year business in revenue, I think. And in the eyes of venture capitalists, that's just a complete failure. And he was ultimately like, gradually transitioned away from that company and I don't think he got much of a much of an outcome from that even though by 
many people's measure, that's that's a, a success. And so indie SaaS, like to me, is is kind of the best way to describe like building more like a small business as opposed to a startup, you know, where you're trying to build a business with sound fundamentals. And I guess the indie part is more like independent from traditional venture capital is sort of how I think of it. I do have a little bit of funding from Tiny Seed, which is sort of like an alternative technically venture capital, but it's an alternative to traditional venture capital in that they buy a little bit of equity in your company and they don't come with the same growth expectations. It's like, no, just grow a meaningful, profitable business and they're happy. And that's that's the kind of thing that I want to be doing. That's really cool because I love this idea of, you know, so many of us out here, right? We're developers. This is what we do. We love it. It's our day job, but we're so many guys, you talk to somebody, it's like, oh yeah, I got a side project, I got a side project. People have these ideas about something that this could actually add value, right? I have an idea for something that could be interesting, but it's not such a big idea that it's going to be a unicorn, right? And they recognize that. And that's where I think the indie developer, or sometimes they call them lifestyle businesses, where it's like, if I can keep it small, then the profit to cost ratio makes sense. It's a fun idea and it's a fun place to be. I think the pedal stack in particular, when you talk about Phoenix, Elixir, LiveView, Tailwind, Alpine.js, all together, you know, it's that combination that gives you what you're talking about, some of those simplifications, those advantages. And I just feel like Elixir with that whole kind of stack and now maybe even less so with Alpine.js, just because of the advancements in LiveView. But I, I feel like we in the Elixir space are uniquely positioned to build something like that in that space. And that's why I think people, if they haven't kind of heard about this whole indie SaaS idea, that they might be interested in just to know that, hey, there, there's an alternate path. Yeah. And I think that's um, something that my friend, mentor, former business partner, <laughs> Rob Walling, he, he's uh, started Tiny Seed along with the, his partner on that. Something that he talks a lot about is, you know, kind of the stair-step approach. And this is something he's been talking about since, I think, 2007 or something. It's basically like, you know, to get into this, like us as developers are in a unique position where we can actually, we can build the product. And with a little bit of, you know, learning, we can figure out some marketing techniques and how to get something into market. And there's a lot of power in just being able to create something out of nothing and produce value and exchange that for money, you know? And so... But it's hard to go straight into like full-blown software as a service. There's a lot of challenges with doing that. But like there are a lot of things you can do on the way to gradually build up a skill set to work towards that. And in the meantime, like start to chip away and replace your income, you know, and a stack like Elixir to me has been it's been pretty low ceremony. It's been like I keep adding tests and my test suite keeps running fast. Uh, it doesn't cost a lot to host it. Package ecosystem is really good. So there's a lot of like excellent shortcuts that I can take to get get features built fast. And so it just, yeah, it's it feels like a a good philosophical alignment with the idea of I'm a creator and I can create stuff and start to gradually make that my income and gain gain the freedom that comes with that. So do you have any tips or what resources were helpful for you as you were kind of on this journey? And having to pick up some of these other skills that you didn't already have, like some of these marketing things and just this, this business mindset. I've been a part of kind of the microconf community for a while. And that's, that's again, as it was a conference that was started by Rob Walling, my former business partner. And it's a good example of a really, really healthy community of people who are kind of interested in doing this indie SaaS thing. And I think most people in that community would kind of describe that as their as their goal. And they're really, really supportive. There's a Slack 
community for this and they there's conferences and there's they're doing local events now and stuff too in different uh, different spots around the world so a lot going on in that community i think indie hackers is a is a cool space too indie hackers tends to be a little bit more skewed towards kind of just developers working hacking on side projects and i think microconf tends to skew a little more towards i want to build a serious business around this so i think there's there's a little something for everyone in between these between these two communities i'd say I have a list of books. Actually, I have a page on my website that have been sort of sort of influential to me. We can link to it in the show notes too. There's one called The Mom Test. That's sort of my, if you're going to go out and try to talk to customers, you need to read this book first because there's so many ways that customers will accidentally lie to you. <laughs> and, and like, you know, if you're really jazzed about the idea you're going to build, there's so many ways that you can accidentally taint what they think you know if you if you just go into pitch mode and start telling them how cool your idea is you're never going to be able to get like really valuable insights from them to determine if it's going to actually be viable in the market so that's that's a big one and then yeah there's a number of others on this list that folks can check out very cool yeah we definitely want to have a link to that in the show notes one of the things that was helpful for me is i had this idea for this service that i was going to create had a mobile component and everything elixir backend I had this idea for for it. And then it was a friend who is a CTO at a company. He's like, oh, let's go to lunch. And he brought out another friend because he knew I was kind of working on the side idea. In talking through it, I realized that just the way the market worked, and this was actually around food and the way grocers work and things like that. So it was very specific. And there was something that I realized I had no understanding or appreciation for how that industry worked. And I was able to realize, wow, there's, you know, yeah, I could really build a really cool solution, but there's not a market for it. So that was a very helpful thing to get early on, you know, to, to realize, oh, before I spend another year trying to make this and make it super awesome and have something that there's just no market for. Mm -hmm. So yeah, any kind of tips like that, I think are really helpful for us who, you know, we're excited about the code and sometimes we get a little lost in that. I will say I'm like, I'm a big fan of saying like if if someone wants to go be a solo founder and do wear many hats like go for it because that's that's the model that I've chosen but I also know that like it's very hard to do that and one of the biggest things that a lot of developers can do to increase their odds of success is like partnering up with someone who is non probably non-technical or maybe they are technical but they're also like really interested in like owning the kind of the business side of of the company and they have maybe they are they're the ones with the deep insights and connections into the industry that you're going to build for early on in my career i had i was like trying to just like methodically vet business ideas and at one point i had just been through like home buying process and i was like tooling around real estate for like um, realtors is terrible and i was exploring all these ideas and i talked to a bunch of realtors and i remember one of these people like who gave me the time of day to to that my idea with told me like, you know, I think you really need to spend a lot of time in the industry before you can figure out what we need. Like you don't really understand. I was like, okay, if that's fair, <laughs> like I probably didn't really understand the dynamics of, and cause it's complicated, you know, to, and when you're in the industry, like I probably would have been, if I really wanted to go that route, I would have been a good idea to team up with someone who's like, oh, I've been a realtor for 10 years and I've seen all the problems and I know exactly what we need. And it's like, cool. I'm the, I'm the builder. I can, I can totally build that in collaboration with you who actually has deep insights and understanding of, of the problem space. That's where like, I think, you know, building, scratching your own itch is kind of a common path. A lot of people take, like you identify some problem that you have 
And that is not a guaranteed way to succeed, but it's much better than just trying to pull something out of thin air and assuming that you know the problem that some other person has. If you haven't experienced it yourself, there's probably a lot of blind spots that you have, you know? That's an interesting concept. And I remember reading something from Paul Graham one time saying that it's actually beneficial on the other side of the spectrum too, to go into something without a deep understanding, because then you're more likely to build something to disrupt the industry. But I, I think it goes both ways, right? I can see like having deep knowledge helping, but I could also see going in completely naive could also be beneficial, but maybe harder. I think certainly like if you, and that's where, again, like a, a an interesting partnership could go a long way. It's like you have the person who who understands the pains that are being experienced by the market today, but then you're also the person who's the outsider. So you're like, well, I, I understand how this problem is being solved in a similar way in this other industry. And what if we had some crossover from there? And I think that's a that's a good opportunity to like bring in some innovation from other fields, you know? Derek, we're unfortunately about out of time. But one of the things I'd want to make sure to mention is that you're also a host on your own podcast, Art of Product. You co-host that. In case people haven't heard about this podcast before and they want to check it out and kind of they like the way you're talking, what will they find when they go and listen to this one? It's a podcast I've been doing with Ben Orenstein from Tuple for a number of years now. And it's basically just two founders on the mic talking about what's happened in the last week or two in their business. <laughs> so we're not an advice show necessarily. We're not like trying to package things up and say like, this is how you should run your business. Really, we're just kind of trying to be as open and transparent as we can about things that are going well, things that aren't going well, to hopefully let other you know people kind of hear how we solve problems and help other founders and maybe maybe provide some entertainment along the way as we deal with our own struggles. It feels like a, it, indie hackers tend to be a lot more open about like their business. So you're like literally have a whole podcast about building your business. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. That intersects a lot with like open source contributors a lot. Uh, just, just generally being open about, you know, the problems that you're facing and how to contribute and stuff like that. Yeah. It's been fun. Well, Derek, this has been awesome. I really appreciated learning more about what's behind Savvy Cal. And, you know, it's something I was aware of that existed. There's, oh, here's this new calendaring option. Just knowing that Elixir is what's behind that. And that really you're able to do that as a small team now with plus one right? Two devs now, but like you did this all on your own. That is very encouraging to me. And I love that. And I love that you're sharing it. So if people want to follow you online or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? I'd say my SEO is pretty good. So you can search Derek Reimer. You'll find DerekReimer.com. I'm at Derek Reimer on Twitter. And then artofproductpodcast.com is where I talk weekly. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Thank you.